So the question was from Tushar, and he said, if you get the time, could you please share some content with us about starting out as a freelancer, the business side of it? Keep it up and thanks a lot. <laughs> so that's that's a huge, huge, huge topic. Um, but, but obviously they're thinking about actually starting out. And then I, I saw a similar question on Twitter too about how to actually start. So I guess right now there's probably quite a few people. Well, we know this for definite. There's people that have been furloughed in the UK or they've lost their jobs or, or things like that. I've, I've seen a bunch of people on Twitter saying I'm looking for a job. Yeah, I've experienced, I've experienced that personally. A friend of mine, my housemate, um, she lost her job rather than being furloughed um, and wanted to take a call with me to see how to start um, as a freelancer. She didn't know how to do that. Um, and I think what she really wanted to know was the fundamentals, was registering tax um, and how much she should be saving for tax. So perhaps we can just start with that. Unfortunately, we've got international viewers, I think. So our advice is really going to be towards, or that aspect of it is going to be geared towards people in the UK because we don't know the tax bans of, of um, other countries. But hopefully after speaking about that, we can talk more broadly about um, acquiring clients uh, retaining clients and, and promotion and those kind of things and broader ideas of what we've learned. So perhaps uh, you yourself have done freelancing, right? We've got another, or at least we've got one viewer now, right? Yeah, we've we got my cat. This is Alfie. Uh, go on, go down. <laughs> He'll stay there. Yeah, so so I started by freelancing when I had an agency job. Um, And I... I've never worked by myself like that. I was working with a, another designer from another agency. So my, my experience was freelancing together, basically. Uh, and we we was lucky to start like that when we still had full-time jobs. So we had a lot of opportunity to make mistakes. And we didn't know anything when we first started. We literally knew nothing about tax, nothing about business setup and all that kind of thing. And the cat's jumping around again. <laughs> uh, let me just get rid of it. <laughs> we should absolutely keep that in this is that's the job right you've got a cat and you're trying to focus on work and it's like asking for some attention yeah although it's amplified more with other people they've got uh, actual children and stuff haven't they? <laughs> yeah so so yeah we we started when we still had jobs so we were really lucky to do that and we just started by actually just doing side projects actually not much client work and the first bit of client work actually came from one of my previous employers. So I mentioned last time I always wanted to run my own agency. And when I left, and I see this happen a lot, and you, you might have a similar experience. When I left my job and said I was going freelance, my previous agency, because they thought I'd done a good job, wanted to hire me back as, um, as a freelancer. So that's where we got our start. Is that similar to you? Did Have you found that previous employers want to help you out and things like that? In terms of, so I, I've never been employed. Oh, no, you haven't. I started have. freelance straight from university. And I think I wanted to just cover that um, in the UK, if you want to start as freelance, you can start invoicing. You just need to make sure at some point you register with HMRC and that you file a self-assessment tax form at the end of the year you're expected to pay 20% uh, on all earnings 
that you have up to, I think, um, from April 5th this year, it's somewhere around 12,500 um, that you will not have to pay tax on. That is uh, your personal allowance. And after 12,500, you will pay 20% on everything you earn. Um, the advice I was given when I first started freelancing was to save a third um, because you will also have to pay national insurance. Um, so save a third of all income that you have, put it away, um, put it in another account so you don't even see it as available because that will be long to the government. Um, the mistake I made was that I was running so close to the line, paying my rent and earning so little that I wasn't saving anything, even though my father, who had freelanced for many years, said, Rich, you need to focus on making sure you've got that third from everything you own. So when it came around to the tax, um, when you pay your tax, which is due on January 31st of the year after the tax year that you've submitted, um, that I had didn't have it and I had to find clients to actually get enough tax. And I was lucky that I was such a low earner at that time that um, with the personal allowance um, that I wasn't actually paying very much tax on that. So from a practical point of view, register with HMRC as soon as you start uh, invoicing new clients. Uh, keep in mind that you will be paying 20% on everything over 12,500 and save a third where you can and then make sure that you work from there. It's obviously quite different when you have dependents, um, if you have a family, um, if, you, if you have other uh, financial responsibilities, is that you need to be very careful about moving from full-time employment to freelance. Um, it can seem like there, that, is, that you have all of these people that you're going to bring over and you can get the perception of stability. But as we're experiencing now, there's always the black swan where you do not see it coming and everything that you think is stable is not stable and you lose clients. And I think also we should talk about that feast or famine mentality at some point where there, there's a psychological uh, component to freelancing where you need to be able to stomach three months of no work um, and find your way through that and have that kind of uh, strength of character where you think, I'm going to keep working. I'm going to keep on trying to find clients. I've got savings. Um, and then when, when you've got a lot of clients in that you're banking money and you're not trying to immediately raise the standard of your living, you're actually creating a financial stability to counter those future activities. Is, is that your experience of freelancing or have you always had that income that you've always had clients? Have you ever had a, a famine period? We, we've had lots of famine periods. I, I think that the nature of being a designer and just the nature of creative work, that's often how it is. It was usually quiet in the middle of the summer when everybody goes on holiday and there's no decision makers around. Sometimes we're quiet at Christmas, um, quiet in the new year. So it, there is always that we always see this kind of up, up and down like this, this feast or famine. But one of the things that I would really want to say and the thing that we didn't do when we first started was start to seriously think about recurring income and not not just thinking I need to get a client. Not well, not ne not necessarily passive income. I mean getting your clients on a retainer or getting them to pay you some kind of monthly fee for some piece of work. So when when we first started, 
this was one of the biggest regrets that we never did. We had the opportunity to, we worked on probably maybe 100 websites or something in the first two years because we were on um, a program with the local council that gave away free marketing materials. And one of those marketing materials was a free website. So we built a lot of websites, but we never asked for money off them. We didn't ask them to pay us a monthly fee or anything like that. So we could have potentially built up a recurring income very early on that would have helped us through those farming periods. And it's now only... Um, we probably only started taking it seriously at maybe year seven. I'm quite embarrassed to admit. Um, oh, no, I'm I'm year fifteen, and I've only just done my first uh, retainer, and it saved me. Yeah, I, I I did it in November ahead of all of this, yeah. and it saved me. I wouldn't I would really be struggling right now without that. I felt like maybe you felt the same way. I felt like it was wrong to ask for it. Mor- morally, I, I felt, I always had this thing and and the other people at Genius Division were the same. We always had this thing that you were getting ripped off when you were asking for a retainer. So we, we had some clients who came to us and they were on these massive retainers with other agencies and we used to look at them and say, you're getting ripped off. So we, it took us a long time to work out a way to do it that we, did, we didn't feel like we were ripping a client off to do it. So the, the first step that we made was kind of a monthly thing for a website. So our main re- recurring product that we've kind of really uh, productized and made really good for a client is basically just uh, protecting a website. We give them monthly updates. We we uh, give them advice on how to improve. We give them, uh, they can basically send, send stuff to us and we'll automatically upload it for them for, for free as part of the deal. So... So that kind of thing, please think about that from the very beginning because there's lots of ways, no matter what kind of design work you're doing, there's lots of ways you can say to them after the product is done, do you want to do something every month after this? I've found that the the retainer, and you're right, is that you need to work out what it is that you're providing that you can sell in in a within in a way that you feel has an integrity and a, a value add to them. And for me, because I'm self-employed with multiple clients, and I get a new one, I say, "Well, you your time will be on this project um, mixed in with the time of, of other projects. If you would like to prioritize your work." If you want to be able to drop me an email on Monday and me do it on Monday, a retainer would work there and we can just schedule uh, days, mm-hmm. blocks of days. Um, and you can use that as and when you please. And it gives them that kind of flexibility. And also it means that um, that I have the security of, of work for that month. They know that I'll be there for them. Um, I can take on other projects. And also that there isn't always a, a kind of discussion of um, if they, they book me for 10 days, really it's like day eight, I'm saying, well, you know, here's a list of all the things I've done. We have two days left. How do you want to use it? Rather than um, saying, well, you know, we've, we've booked this project and we, we're, we're so far into revisions now that I'm going to have to reconfigure the invoices or you're now going to have to spend more money um, on on uh, the, you've gone beyond the project fee, right? And the relationship changes a bit because they were expecting something. 
um, that they have a budget and you're saying, well, you know, within the framework of this, that there's no time left and you will have to pay more. But with the retainer, it's like, this is how much time you're going to get. And they know that that's the relationship you're having. Yeah, it's just one of the things that straight away popped to my mind when we were thinking how to start and, and what to think about. Think about the products that you can potentially offer as well as not just not just starting from the scratch every single time with every single client. And the, the other side of that as well is that you should be, even when you're first starting, you should be looking to build a relationship with every client and not just seeing them as a way to get a little bit of money now to, to solve the immediate problem. So that there's lots of ways to do that. Keeping in touch with your client, we we was we were rubbish at this as well. We used to see a project come in, we'd work on it like crazy, and then as soon as the project was finished, we shipped it, and then we never speak to them again. So people, uh, your previous clients can quickly they can quickly get out of your mind. So there's there's lots of designers out there, lots of agencies. If you do a piece of work for them, and no matter how good it is, if you don't speak to them for four or five months, they can quickly forget you and then move on to somebody else. So it it pays to keep in touch. It's also maintaining the, maintaining the quality of the product that you've actually created, right? That you've built it in a certain way, and rather than just handing it over and saying well, "good luck with that," that you you get to actually maintain the sort of the integrity of the idea. Um, which I think is is really important. The the problem with say a corporate identity program is that the is kind of built in a way where you you create all of the assets, you create a brand book or whatever, and and you give it to them and you hope that it works. It's very difficult to sell in the well. We can check in every month that that things are being produced in in a way that you it becomes very because that big block of say um, billable work becomes this sort of micro payments where it's actually the effort that is required to sustain it actually is greater than the value of money that you're billing for. And I think that's probably why a lot of uh, people working in corporate identity programs just want to do the, the big, the big, um, the big job and just set it on its way. Um, it's where you're working with, say, um, an institution where they're having other things that are constantly coming up. If you're working with a, a university, for instance, is that you set up the corporate identity program, but they always have prospectus, prospectuses, campaigns, all these kind of things. And that's where there is a lot of creativity left. You've established a framework and hopefully you've established a central positioning statement from which everything flows from. And there's a real interest in how you can then turn that central idea that you set up into lots of different sort of campaign strategies and these kind of things. Whereas a lot of people want to sort of wash their hands because they feel that's like advertising and marketing and it's not the big uh, case study photography job, the the awards, all this kind of thing. It, it just become, and we talked about it in the last episode, perhaps a little more banal um, because you're sustaining something, it's not not really the glory of releasing a new logo or whatever like that. But it, but I think there's a great joy in having that relationship where you start to see something you've created work and even evolve over time because there are real things that you thought you planned for have actually not worked out, and you get to iterate. Um, so that relationship where there's still uh, creative opportunities. Um, practical learnings and billing 
um, and client support is a, is a really great place to work. So if we bring it back to that sort of starting as freelance thing, um, absolutely recurring income is really, really good. If you can do passive income, I think that's another great thing is uh, we talked about building blogs. If you can build a blog with a, a small advertising module on it, um, that can be useful. Um, have you have you got any passive streams of income? This is something that I've been really rubbish at all throughout my career, and it's only a thing now that I'm really starting to look at. And it's something we were rubbish at as freelancers, and we've been rubbish at as an agency. And now the only passive thing that I've got is a book that I've written that I sell uh, through my Twitter, and that's it, through my Twitter and my website. There's lots of other ideas that we could have done as freelancers and now. I mean, we've we've got probably 50 ideas for these things that are all kind of half-finished, littered in the past of things that we've done. And I think that's um, that's a, a, an often often a story, particularly with designers and developers and things like that, people in the creative industry. They've got all these project ideas and all these cool things that they've done that never get shipped but would actually really help them. Uh, and an- another thing that's slightly related to that that I want to mention as well, when we first started, we were absolutely terrible at promotion. And there's going to be two, by the time this gets released, there'll be two episodes previous to this that are about promotion. But we were terrible at promotion and we never told anybody about the work that we were doing. So a really, really important thing to do when you first become a freelancer is set out exactly what you can do put it on a website, show people what you can do. This sounds really basic, but the amount of people that don't do it is insane. Actually show the previous projects you've done and the value of your work so you can easily pass people onto it and say, this is what I'm worth and and this is what I do and this is why you should hire me. A lot of people just set up a a holding page, don't they, with the phone number on or their email address or something and say, website coming soon, and then it never does. Yeah. Going back to passive income, when I first started freelancing, um, perhaps I think about four years in, of 15 years, I put a lot of effort into iStock, which was I was generating, I think I had a portfolio of 200 illustrations. Some of those were 10 variations on the same illustration, which iStock allowed you to do if it was different enough. I did a whole series of insects and I would just upload it as vector illustrations and then people would buy these, uh, it was like small payments, like $20 per illustration usage. And I was getting about $300 a month off of that. So I had to keep on adding one or two every so often, but there were ways of creating new files off the back of old files. That kept me going for quite some time. Um, my rent was really, really low back then. It was something like £200 a month in Nottingham. Um, and I was finding that that was paying my rent. Uh, the only thing with that is that there's an algorithm that um, sorts by time. So uh, the older your illustration is, the further it gets buried in the, in the sort of search results. So you have to keep on topping it up. Um, so that, that was one thing that I did is any way you can do, um, you can get revenue from um, stock is is quite a good one. I know a lot of people at the time, um, I knew were doing photography. Um, and that, that's probably even more applicable now. You, you've got a phone that'll do a high enough quality imagery. Um, you just have to find a bit of a niche 
interest uh, because these stock uh, sites are just vast, vast things. Um, and it, it can be quite hard. It's going, looking back at things, now it seems easier than it is today to do that kind of thing because there were less designers. Um, the tools were not as, as available. And I think also, and to be frank, I was using illegal versions of Photoshop and Illustrator for quite some time. Uh, I think I only started using Creative Cloud and paying for it about three years ago. And it was really just a rent first kind of thing. And I don't advise people to pirate things, but going back to previous episodes, you kind of do what you need to do to survive um, uh, in this climate. And uh, I think that, they've, that to a lot of people, it is very expensive. It especially used to be when it was, what was it, 1,200 quid or something for a year. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it just was prohibitively expensive. But I think now, for some, yes, it, it is. It's still expensive if, per month for some people. But the, there's, there's not only do you get um, a full version that isn't buggy, um, but there's also a feeling of legitimacy that is very powerful once you start paying for these things. And it's like when I moved from, I was using a, a PC laptop for so long. Uh, when I first bought my um, iMac, the, there is a feeling that goes with that, with freelancers upgrading your equipment when you can, um, starting to pay for software. And it's the font thing as well, is that, to be honest, I was, I was uh, using fonts uh, without licenses for quite some time. And there was a point where um, my revenue just started to uh, get better. And as soon as that was possible, I started paying for all of my licenses. Um, and that was about five years ago. Uh, <laughs> it is not great advice, but um, when you can pay, um, it, it's part of the ecosystem, right? Of, of creators and paying where you can. The, the, that sense of legitimacy as a designer and credibility, like I have the, the equipment, I'm paying for the software, um, the, the, there's a really good feeling um, doing that. I think now that there's lots of other legitimate options as well for software, which does make it a bit better. Things like Figma is fantastic and things like Sketch is still only $99 or whatever it is. And then the Affinity Suite that's coming out now, Affinity Photo, Affinity Designer, and Affinity Publisher, they're all legit. They're all really good apps. So th there is options that make it a little bit easier, <clears throat> excuse me, a little bit easier to be legitimate from the beginning and actually start making making stuff without needing to download dodgy software. I think the, the other thing we're touching on is um, taking risks. So when you, when you first start uh, freelancing, I didn't really have an option. I didn't really have any kind of employment opportunities at the time. So uh, I just had to jump on any opportunity. And there was a girl from my class at university. And uh, I was very good at Photoshop at university. That's how I set up all my presentation boards. I, I studied furniture and product design, not graphic design. But I got on board with Photoshop ahead of everybody else in the class because they were cutting and pasting their stuff. Um, I think they were like using Word and printing it out and doing their presentation boards. That way, I was straight on with Photoshop. And 
she assumed that I had this knowledge of um, Adobe software packages. So when she was working with her first employer in London, they were looking for someone to help illustrate uh, a range of mo uh, home phones that they were developing uh, for, I think it was uh, BT or somewhere like that. And she said, well, this guy knows Photoshop, and I, but we need someone on Illustrator. And she called me up and said, we need you to use Illustrator. I said, yeah, 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 I can, I can do that. I had no idea how to use Illustrator. I had a week to learn it uh, before they paid for me to be um, – it was my first sort of big job. It was like a thousand pounds in London. I was a month into freelancing. Um, I had to book. I basically lost all of that money on booking B and Bs in Twickenham and uh, Richmond. But I needed to actually be working. I needed to be learning. I didn't know how to do the job, but I kind of said I did, and I taught myself Illustrator uh, in a week. I went down there. I don't know whether they could tell that I bullshitted my way in there. They were very, very gracious, and I just about knew how to do it all, and I thought the work was good. Um, the money went on the B&B. I had some left over for my rent in, in Nottingham because it was so low. But So the learning there would be it's going to be frightening to begin with. There are going to be loads of things you don't know how to do, and um, what you need to do is grab hold of any opportunity for income and just teach yourself. And this isn't me mythologizing or anything. This is literally what happened. I didn't know how to use Illustrator. I said yes to the job. Uh, I bought myself B&Bs uh, and I went down there and I, I, I did the very best I could. And they paid me. Um, and I learned so much from that. Um, and so grab hold of any opportunity. You can learn it. A bit of fear behind you and you will learn it. Yeah, a bit of pressure helps. I have, I've got a similar story as well. I Somebody asked me to make, uh, this was when Flash was popular, somebody asked me to make an in-store kind of navigation system for, for a new art gallery. And I said, <laughs> and I said yes. And a wayfinding system. It, well, it was... You, you basically, when you went inside the art gallery, they had basically all their catalogue on this system. Not a wayfinding system, but a way to see all their products, basically, because some of them weren't on the walls and things like that. So it was kind of like a virtual catalogue, I guess. And it was on um, a system inside inside the building on, on a totem type thing. And they asked me to to build this and I'd never never used flash before and I'd, I'd never done anything like this before and I said yeah yeah I'll do it and then I, I, I spent a week and they needed it doing in two weeks I spent a week learning action script and a week learning flash and I got it done and the, the end result I think looked okay the same again but I think that's sometimes how you learn they, there is this there is this danger sometimes that I see with people wanting to go freelance where they say um and I'm not not saying everybody's like this, but some people do do say, "I want to go freelance. What are all the things that I need to do first? And there is some basics like we've covered: sort the money out, um, and sort your promotion out, and things like that. But sometimes people use those things to stop themselves from getting started, and it's quite important to say, just say yes as much as you can, and actually just get started with it. I told the story last time about we only had two thousand pounds. And we quit our jobs, and that was just one month's wages for each of us. 
and we quit our jobs just to get started because you sometimes need the push to actually see where it goes the survival instinct and you've talked about it a lot the survival that you had to do you had to make rent made you continue doing what you were doing and made you get better and then ultimately you became a competent freelancer and, and an excellent designer so it's important sometimes to just say yes and actually just go for it even though you feel like you're not going to be ready because to, to an extent we are all winging it I'm still winging it now you're still winging it now we just know more so we wing it a little bit less but there's still stuff that we don't know that we're learning as we're going I thought I think that it's probably worth mentioning that because we're surviving now and I would use things like words like stability rather than success is that I know I have six months rent in the bank and aside from what may be an economic huge economic recession that I should be able to make my rent what I don't want people to get from this um, who are listening that risking everything is not a good idea. You still need to temper um, that you can listen to people doing these podcasts and YouTube videos and think it's really easy or that I should take the risk or I should take the jump that sometimes I didn't have an option and I had to do it. Now my risks are always measured against how much rent I can pay. I don't have any dependents. So by all means, take risk but it has to be a measured risk don't put yourself in a place where you can't make your rent payments or where you can't pay your tax bill do the calculation um, particularly if you're going from employment to uh, self-employment work out how much time you're going to be able to give yourself to try and get yourself up and running and stable um, that don't risk what you can't afford to lose, I think is really, really important. But also yeah. tempered with the spirit of trying something new, right? Is that I've got six months rent, I'm gonna try this for six months. I've got a history of employment, I should be able to go back into employment if it doesn't work out. I think that's really, really important. By all means, take a risk, but give yourself a very specific time frame in which to make it work. And But also be generous with yourself. Don't, don't think that it's gonna work in uh, two months or three months or four months. I think half a year, a year is a good time frame to really give it a good try and see if you can do it. And be be strict with yourself and, and honest with yourself. If it's not working, if you're struggling, um, say, look, it hasn't worked out this time. I'm going to go back into employment. Maybe I'm going to learn some new skills. I'm going to make connections. I'm going to see if my employer lets me work freelance on the side. And that's a really important conversation to have, right? is that um, if you have an employer, what they don't want to employ is someone that's tired because they're freelancing from 8 p.m. till 1, 2 a.m. Just be honest. Um, I think that's always a good way to start if your employer is really open to that. But yeah, again, it's measured risk. Um, don't put yourself in a, in a difficult situation because the work will suffer. I, yeah, I, I completely agree. That's That's a really good point to add tempering my my uh, entrepreneurial spirit um, <laughs> yeah yeah do, just like two grand in the bank craig says go do it <laughs> yeah um another thing that i think you've touched on a little bit as well that's really important when you start as a freelancer now this this one's not always possible but with 
particularly the couple of questions we've had, people are thinking about going freelance. So we know that they do have the opportunity to plan this bit. One of the things that really helped us when we started was to start to build up a network of people that we knew that might want work from us. So that was previous employers, that was family and friends, uh, that was other agencies. Basically, at the point when we started, Twitter was really big for, for networking between designers and stuff like that. So we focused a lot of our time initially to developing relationships with people and fostering those relationships, not in, not in a, a kind of a, a synthetic way, not in a fake way, but actually making friends with a lot of people and if possible, finding people who are in a similar situation to you as well. I th think that's a really good thing to get in place before you start freelancing, if possible. I, I'm going to temper that with if possible, because that's not possible for everybody. I, again, I have no idea. Uh, I had none of that. I didn't do any of that kind of networking stuff. Um, all I was doing was just pushing out work across multiple platforms. So uh, like 12 years ago, the platforms were quite different from what they were now, that things like Dribble didn't exist. There are loads of different creative uh, platforms, but they didn't have this new, um, you know, the thing with Dribble is that, or Behance or um, these kind of things that they draw in non-designers because they're quite easily accessible platforms to go in and find a designer. Whereas before they were very kind of specialist things. So I was using forums where um, uh, to talk with other designers and get freelance advice would be the place where I was doing it. But really I was learning, I was making it up as I went along. I wasn't really reading marketing 101 or anything like that. It was just being everywhere, having a profile on everything, updating everything as soon as I had new work. And so imagine, say, there was like six or seven different creative platforms. Um, there, a lot of them are dead now, but the, one of them was like Logo Pond. Um, anything with logo in the name is really good catch because um, new businesses, when they type in logo designer, they will hit these bigger platforms first instead of individual designers. Um, I started to get quite good at, at the early days of um, uh, alt tagging my work. Um, focusing on SEO. So I was on the first page of freelance graphic designer UK kind of thing that really worked for me, but I don't do that so much now. Um, I would say casting your net as big as possible and updating it all um, across multiple platforms. It can be very mechanical, very boring, but having a presence on all of these different sites is really, really useful. Um, I, I never really found the networking thing to be something that I was interested in because I was just so busy trying to generate clients uh, then have time to sort of find other designers. There are things that you can end up sinking your time into that are perhaps not worth it. So I spent a lot of time on Logo Pond. Do you remember Logo Pond? They're still, still or I think the, the earlier days I was on uh, Dribble in its first few months and you get sucked into it because, uh, and we've talked about it before, this sort of dopamine hitter getting lots of likes and things like that, that actually practically these aren't necessarily great places to pick up work, um, that it's better to, to broaden your reach and create a bigger net, pushing things out on Instagram, Pinterest, Twitter, Facebook, 
because you just do not know where people are going to pick up pick you up from i told you in previous episodes i picked up a large corporate client in dubai off the back of a pinterest post um i think it's worth mentioning price points as well is i found that each social media channel generates a very specific idea of the value of design so instagram logo archive i get a lot of inquiries about logo design but their expectation of of price and value um the most people are ever willing to pay on instagram through an account that i have 155,000 followers so you think there's a maybe an associated credibility is a hundred dollars uh sometimes it's ten dollars so there's a point where you just you have to choose which time you're or where you're placing your time things like that dribble i've not found the the budget's particularly large but they're good perhaps if you're starting off um so pinterest as well you'll pick up a, a few small businesses uh startups uh, individuals that have small home businesses uh, but their b- budgets are going to be you know zero to five hundred dollars zero to thousand dollars great place to start um i think but if you really want to scale your business um we talked about how new people that are hiring or looking for new uh designers uh, are of a generation that are using pinterest and, and twitter to find designers but it's still word of mouth is the best way of uh, getting bigger clients um, that is not necessarily I've had I work off the back of not having a portfolio where simply a recommendation was strong enough for me to get a very very large project um, compared to these very small things that I would get from Pinterest sometimes I'll pick up architecture clients off of a Pinterest pin and I'll be up to say a thousand pounds small logo sort of small logo package job which can be very useful if you're getting a lot of them and you're doing it in a day or two days um so it's you really have to do some sort of thinking about what's working what's what what's not working asking people where they're coming from where they're finding you um and just making sure you're not spending too long on things that just aren't working things like dribble can be really really um rewarding in terms of you can feel like you're doing a good job but you can't uh sustain a rent off the back of likes and comments you you need that to turn into revenue uh, and then also when you're first starting out as a freelancer deposits 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 absolutely yes 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 because the the, the projects that we took on probably the first year or two sometimes we didn't ask for a deposit we there's there's this there's this thing where you um when you first start out in business you feel like you're not worthy so when you start to make some kind of business transaction with somebody and they don't want to pay you a deposit you might not have the confidence to say to them well i'm not taking on this job until you give me a deposit so we got caught up in that a couple of times in the early days and then after that, we started asking for a 25% deposit. And then after that, we started asking for a 50% deposit. So for a very long time, we asked for 50% upfront and the remaining 50% is due on delivery. But I would take that a step further, depending on the project. We have increasingly moved towards 
kind of staged payments, more staged than that, that aren't based on the deliverables of the work always. They're actually based on a time period because sometimes it sounds good to actually say, we'll take 20% as a deposit, then we'll take 20% when the logo is decided, for example, then we'll take another 20% when the brand guidelines have finished, then we'll take another a bit, a bit so-and-so like that, basically payments based on milestones. But then if the client, for whatever reason, disappears, you are without that payment and there's no way that you can progress that project. So think really hard about those staged payments and how you want to do them. We increasingly, when when clients are open to it, not all of them are, when clients are open to it, we've switched to a, a a monthly payment schedule for a lot of them. So depending on, we might say the project might take three months, we'll split that into three equal payments, or, or maybe less depending on the client. It helps our cash flow. It helps it helps them understand it's not as and it's also not as big payments for them. But ultimately, it helps your cash flow, and that is the most important thing to try and block against that feast or famine idea. So if you can bring in deposits and bring in regular payments it'll help you massively so the way the way i i was very lucky that i cottoned onto the 50 percent thing really really early on into freelancing um that i think that's just somewhere i picked up you know you read on a forum somewhere and the way i i i think about it and i still think about it this way is if every project from now on i only ever receive 50 percent and that it crashed, the project crashed and the, the client disappeared. Could I live on that? And if the answer is yes, then I will take that project on. Um, and that, that just means that the, it's like a psychological thing, right? If I only ever get 50%, can I still live? Um, and I suppose it's because I'm not, I'm not really engaging in huge budget projects. Um, and what I say to clients is, uh, to justify that, I say, look, that 50% covers some, but not all of my time. And that's the kind of commitment I say I give to them is that um, I'm taking a risk. I'm going to spend more time than, than you paid for, essentially, if we're talking about. We don't really equate time to, to value, but that's how you frame it. Um, and you're taking a risk by giving me money up front uh, that, that the work will meet the, 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 the brief but also you're, you're free to cancel. And I think that's really important that sometimes you're not always going to get it right. We're dealing with, particularly if you're dealing with small businesses, it's very difficult for a client to unravel their personal aesthetic sensitivities and expectations from business goals. I've just found that from experiences that, that as much as you try to frame it uh, in a pragmatic way, um, that, that it's just very, very difficult for, for some people to do that. Um, for others, it isn't. Um, so having that sort of uh, security and understanding between the both of you that we're both taking a risk. Um, I've, I've not had many projects uh, fall short, uh, but they have and they do. And you learn to just take it on the chin and say, look, you did your best. You believe that you responded to the brief in the best way possible that would serve their business goals and that you listen to what they said and that if they just start saying, I don't like it, and you say, but perhaps could you reframe this so that the conversation is within the context of the brief and the things that you want to achieve, 
um, and they just can't. You just have to draw a line under it. And I've not really had anybody that has been particularly pissed off because I've been so clear up front. And that also comes with structuring your own agreements. Now, people talk about contracts. The, one of the most important things to remember is, do you have the money to enforce the contract? And I've never had enough money to enforce a contract. What I do is I have an agreement that I send out with the deposit request that stipulates exactly what they're going to get. This, uh, depending on the budget, I'll say, look, if, you, if we're using uh, fonts that are outside of my library, you will be responsible for paying the license fee on that. Um, when I talk about revisions, I talk about uh, cycles of revisions or time. I tell them exactly how much time um, outside of the project, how much my hourly rate is. So I'll say, this is, um, I will deliver three directions. I will talk about these directions to you and why they're relevant to the brief uh, and why they will help your business. And then there will be time for us to have a conversation, um, look at what we've done and, and move one of them in a direction uh, following your feedback and, and there will be that sort of collaborative component. And this is how long it will go on for. Um, and after that, this is how much it will cost you. So they know exactly what they're going to get. And that, that they can always go back to the agreement and say, look, Rich, you said four hours. Uh, we don't think this is four hours work. And you can say, well, sure, okay. I'm usually very generous when it comes to that, right? I can tell when, when people are being cheeky or when they genuinely feel like I've not fulfilled the brief. Um, this is something you learn over time, right, is that, give and take that you're not being too dogmatic. Um, you also want a good result and uh, you want a, a practical one that works for your client. And sometimes you're not going to achieve that straight away. And sometimes you're going to have to give something away. Um, and the agreement is a framework. I always think of it as a framework. It's, it's the minimum they can expect from you. That was actually what I was going to bring up. I was going to bring up terms and conditions because that is because we didn't sort out our deposits, we didn't sort out our terms and conditions, so we didn't have any way to fall back on when a project went wrong or it didn't go the way that we wanted it to go. So those two things are really important. If you've got deposits, get a deposit, actually tell the client when you're going to charge them, get them to agree to it. It doesn't have to be a legal document, but get them to agree to it and, and then know what you're going to do when things go wrong because things do go wrong sometimes. So it is important to have an agreement in place, like you said, that protects against those situations when things might go wrong. Yeah, and the thing is, for me, it's just like an integrity thing. Um, you're, you need to be reasonable. You need to have something to go back to. Um, I always say in the terms and conditions at the bottom that payment of the deposit is acknowledgement that you've read the terms and conditions. I also have things in it that say, um, if I don't hear from you uh, within two weeks, which I think is a reasonable time, I'll consider the, the, the project cancelled. And that just keeps the momentum up. Um, yeah. uh, there, there are just things that you will learn over time to add to the terms and conditions just to... Um, it, it, nothing will ever protect you against somebody that is really intent on suing you. And I've had one person that was really, really angry um, and they said they were going to sort of uh, sue me. But I just kept on referring back to the agreement and says, 
um, I'm sorry, but the, this is what the agreement said. And if you feel that you need to take that kind of approach, I understand. Um, I will continue to refer back to this agreement um, if you take this further. There's always the um, Citizens Advice Bureau if you ever feel like you're going to be stuck and you need some advice. But always stay reasonable. Also is to try and keep a chain of communications in one um, uh, like I always use email I never really uh, if anyone starts whatsapping me I say can we bring this onto email so I have a thread that I can refer back to having lots of communications across dis different channels will make it harder for you to track um, what you've promised what they've said because you may need to just print it all out and just document it so lots of different things you will learn over time to, to best approach it. And the other thing is you will start to be able to gauge people uh, when you talk to them on the phone, if you're doing remote work, of um, expectations, what kind of character they are, the way they talk to you about it. Um, if, and this is, and I think maybe you, you will agree, agree with this, Craig, is if, if their budget is really low and, it's, and they, they're that it's a big risk for them, they're going to be problematic because their expectations are so sky high because they're spending to them a huge amount of money rather than people that have a lot more money. The, 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 the relationship is quite different. And I understand that because I've, I spend my own money on design services and hiring people is that when I'm topping out my budget, I almost become even more tighter with them when I, I should be freer right because uh, i know what it's like 